Hi, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Every week I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and you are listening to episode number 29. So I had a tough time coming up with a title for this conversation because Emily and I talk about so many inspiring and amazing and important topics. I considered calling it just OMG, yes, exclamation point, but thought the better of that. Emily May is the co-founder and executive director of Hollaback, a global people-powered movement to end harassment. And she and I go way back. We started having monthly coffees back when we were both baby executive directors, sharing resources, giving one another advice, thinking through funding and growth and plotting the growth of our then very nascent institutions. She was then, as she is now, such an incredibly thoughtful steward of her organization's mission, as well as one of the most incredible strategic minds I've ever known. And both of those attributes show up in our conversation today. Emily shares both sides of herself. Strategically, she talks about her growth as a leader against the backdrop of the astounding growth that Hollaback has experienced in the past year, about how as a leader, she works to continue to set intentions that allow her to make the real shifts in the life cycles of the organization, as she says, from sort of scrappy to a sort of stable institution and now to a, a wholly different kind of institution as they shift pretty suddenly from a million dollars to $5 million in a year. And she talks about the very real balancing act, the calibration of vision with responsiveness to what a movement or a constituency calls on you to do and to bring into the space. More personally, she also shares her story of personal growth and development as a leader. And she talks about how so much of preparing to scale right? We talk about growing as an organization and scaling and the funding that's necessary and building the staff and all of the structural pieces of preparing to scale. But she and I talk about how much of the preparation is actually about thinking through how we as leaders move through the world and how much of readiness to play bigger, to lead bigger, is so much more about mindset and our own growth edges than we may think it is. She shares a lot about her own journey and how she worked to grow so that she would be ready to lead this organization that has grown so astoundingly in the last year. And finally, Emily and I just see eye to eye on so much of the deep stuff about leadership the power of the law of attraction in helping to build the kind of team and network and partners that you really must have if you're going to grow a social impact organization. We share a belief in the power of abundance and the power of a belief in abundance, that there is enough, enough resources, enough power for everyone to step into their own. And we talk about really understanding because we've both been there. And at a certain point, we are there together. The special kind of resilience that it takes to both absorb criticism as a leader and still stand in your truth and push forward with your vision. 
There's just so much richness in this conversation. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having it. Hey, Emily, how are you? Hey, Brooke, how you doing? It is so good to talk to you. I have always loved talking to you. It's been a while. It's so great to reconnect. (laughs) I know, I know. Bringing it back together. Great to see you too. So I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I have been a huge fan of yours, obviously. I feel like we met, I don't know, like 15 years ago? (laughs) Yeah. A long time ago when we were sort of, even before we were EDs. And just have really admired you as a founder, as a woman leader, as someone who's grown an institution. And now, you know, we were talking a moment ago about the tremendous growth, which you'll, you'll tell us about, been really intentional about your growth. And because I've always admired Hollaback as an example of movement building that is responsive and a way of growing an organization that doesn't require sort of traditional hierarchy and sort of centralized power. So there's lots that I want to sort of unpack with you today. But I would love to start with you and sort of the origin story of Hollaback and how you came to be here running this organization. Yeah. I started Hollaback with six other friends when I was 24. And we were were so many of you guys. I thought, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? It started like a conversation of just people hanging out, right? And, and, you know, several, maybe all of the women, I don't know, were like harassed on the way to hang out like you are. And we just started talking about it and sharing our stories. And the men in the group were like, what? Like, how often does this happen? And we were like, every day. (laughs) Like, why isn't anybody talking about this? And we were like, we don't know. People just think it's normal. There's nothing you can do. Like, and so we were inspired by this woman named Tal Nguyen, who was riding the New York City subway when an older restaurant owning man sat down across from her and started to publicly masturbate. And she took his photo. This is 2005. So way back when like cell phone cameras were like just newly a thing. Thing, Everybody, they were a waste of time because you couldn't see anything on them. And she took his photo with the intention of taking it to the police. And the police were just like, I don't know. Sorry, miss. He's probably seven or eight stops away by now. Nothing you can do. So she put that photo on Flickr, the photo sharing website, you may remember from back in the day. Yeah. Um, and it went viral. It made it to the front cover of the New York Daily News, our local tabloid here in New York. And we were just like, wow, this woman has turned the lens off of her onto that person who was harassing her and in doing so ignited this public conversation where everybody had a story. My boss at the time had seen that exact guy masturbating in the subway across from her, right? Oh, gosh. So I know, I know. Small, disgusting world that I mean, we live in. Also like, you know, you and I live in New York. Like I, you know, everybody has, has one everybody of those. has a story. <laughs> yep. So I'm sure, you know, new, we're encouraging people to move into New York as we speak. <laughs> Walking poster boards, you know, posters for, for New York. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the thing was, is that we were so inspired by her. So, and her use of this like relatively new fangled technology. So we started sharing our own stories on a blog and it really just grew from there. We were astounded by the response that what we were doing as a little activist side project, we were not a nonprofit at that juncture. Um, We became a nonprofit really out of demand from people who were like, 
we deserve more than just a little activist side project to deal with this problem. <laughs> like y'all need to figure it out because we need better solutions than just you and your spare time making this work. Mm. So yeah, so I became the first ED in like 2010 or so. And like, we've been chugging along. Oh my goodness. That's quite a long, quite a long time. I know in talking with you, but sort of before we got on in this conversation, you've talked about how there's been sort of an expansion in your focus which feels very much aligned with and responsive to sort of where our culture and society is going in its thinking about, and I think more open, more frank conversations about harassment. Talk a little bit about about that. Yeah. From the jump, I mean, street harassment is, you know, broadly defined as sexual harassment in in public space. And from the jump, we were really sensitive to the ways in which that intersected with race and class and ability and, you know, the queer community, right? We, like, from day one had an anti-racism policy for folks sharing stories on our site. But the front door to our work was always really gender right? And gender expression. And so once people came through that front door, then it was like, all right, let's talk about race. Let's talk about, you know, sexuality. Let's talk about these things. Like, let's recognize your identities. Let's talk about the ways in which you're disproportionately experiencing this because of all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So we were intersectional in that way. But over time, it was just like, look, like we're building all of these tools, all of these mechanisms. Like, why don't we actually live in into not just being like, intersectionally feminist, but being intersectional, intersectional full stop. For real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think around 2015 or so, the board passed, you know, an expansion of our mission state, which was a mission statement, which was originally really focused on street harassment to address harassment in all of its forms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the trick to that though. There's a lot of the, the pulling back the curtains. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of forms of harassment. I mean, people are experiencing broadly defined harassment from cradle to grave. And then you build in all of these identities into it. It's a complicated thing. And also, right, we had to show up really responsibly as effectively an allying organization to folks, you know, across the board. Like we we really had to come in when we were called, not just because we wrote it down on some piece of paper as part of our strategic plan. And, you know, and I think the most recent example of that is that in the beginning of COVID, we saw a rise in anti-Asian, anti-Asian American harassment. We had never really squarely taken on, gone directly through the front door of race in our organization. Like we had gone through every other front door and talked a lot about race, but we had not been through the race front door. And so we reached out and we were like, look, we see this happening. Like, can we help? And Asian Americans Advancing Justice was like, yeah, come over. So we developed these little trainings, bystander intervention trainings, one hour. They were free. We got them vetted through the community. We co-facilitated them. We trained a ton of people, like 16,000 people in that first year. And then we saw that what happened in Atlanta with the women being murdered. And then we saw the incident in Times Square with the 65-year-old woman being beaten outside of the building. And then the blood came, right? So in the past, in this year so far, so we're what, seven months into this year, mm-hmm. eight months maybe, we, are, we have trained about 150,000 people, right? So look at that from like a growth standpoint. 2019, we trained about 5,000 people. That's not bad. 
2020, we trained about 25,000 people. We were jumping through the roof. We were like, oh my God, we're so amazing. We trained like five times more people this year. It's like growth, that growth rate is amazing. Yeah. You're like, look at this. This is awesome. You're like, I could just stare all day at the at the church, you know, that we were church the board in terms of like the, the yeah. growth. Well, now we're up to like 150,000 people trained in, in the past seven months alone. And it's just like, wow. So let me ask a question sort of as from a leadership perspective, how do you craft a compelling vision? How does sort of that rate of growth impact your sense of what's possible, your sense of sort of, or the concrete concreteness of what you are articulating to your board as your vision, right? If you're like, we were so excited about 20,000 and then, you know, this many years later, it's like, oh, but we never even envisioned this number. How do you steward the organization towards a vision if you're like, oh, but we keep surpassing what we even thought we were aiming to do? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We actually haven't surpassed it because what we're aiming to do is end harassment. Last time I checked, there's still a hell of a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's where like the mission comes in, right? That, yeah. The mission comes in. Yeah. But, but to your point, right, we have made a lot of progress against our, yeah. against our mission. I think for us, and this is important, particularly in this moment, is we are not a training institute. We are training a ton of people, but we are absolutely not a training We're movement institute. building organization movement building shop talking about that relationship and how you don't get sucked into being this thing that you are not that's not at the core of of what you intend to be yeah yeah I mean that's a big question that's still unraveling I feel like I'll let you know when I when (laughs) I figure it out (laughs) exactly I mean look like you know, part of it is just that I say those words over and over again to our board, to our staff. I'm like, not training institute, movement building organization. Part of it is, you know, about where we invest. So like we brought in a strategic planner to help us hone in on our movement building work. We're hiring a director of movement building to own that lane, right? So there's pieces of that, you know, in, in there too. But I think what's interesting, having run this organization now for a minute, <laughs> a minute. Um, I'm only 25, but it's been a minute. No, um, run this organization for a minute is um is that what the movement needed in 2005, 2010? It was yeah. stories, right? It was people boldly coming forward and saying, "Look, this happened to me. It's a problem. It matters. I matter. This shouldn't be happening, right?" And that process both made a statement, but it was also really healing. And if you look into history, that is typically where movements start from: is a bunch of people coming together mm-hmm. and realizing, like, I'm not alone in this, and also this isn't okay. From there, I think what we saw that really come to a crescendo with the Me Too movement, in particular, the Black Lives movement. All of a sudden, you know, this idea, the rise of anti-Muslim harassment after the 2016 election, right? This idea that harassment was not okay. <laughs> but first of all, it happened. Second of all, it hurts. And third of all, it's not okay. Started to get like wide adoption, I think, adoption in our culture. Like people really started to get it. And then once people got it, they were like, well, all right, but what do we do? do Yeah. So this is the interesting backstory of our bystander intervention trainings. We've been offering those things since 2011, right? I mean, I remember when I used to talk about them and you think about sort of the international piece of it. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
we launched this campaign called we called I've Got Your Back. We were like, this is it, man. We just get everybody to intervene. We're going to have harassment solved. Like we are on this. People taking care of people. We love this, right? Well, guess what? It was like crickets Mm because the movement wasn't there yet. People were like, harassment's not even a problem. Why does it need to? (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, going back to your point about when you are a movement building institution being responsive as opposed to saying, this is what I, like, this is what we want to do. Like, isn't this so exciting? But it's actually like, no, what are we being called in to do? Yeah. And and it's also doing the work that you as a, I mean, I love the way Adrienne Marie Brown talks about movement leadership because she's basically like, it's like science fiction. Like you're imagining a world that literally doesn't exist, right? And so you simultaneously have to meet people where they are, but also envision like, where do they need to be in 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. And build that stuff, like build the bystander intervention training now, have crickets come to it, right? And like, don't give up. And I feel like a lot of what we did as an organization is we built stuff way early and then we kind of just like somehow managed to survive long enough for it to be relevant. Honestly, there are years that I don't know how the hell we survived in long enough. But now all of a sudden people are like foaming at the mouth for stuff that we had locked in 10 years ago. And now, you know, we had projected from the beginning and, you know, those logic models, we've got logic models inside our organizations, right? So one of our logic models is like systems change. And we said, when we developed it, we were like, look, this is like rolling a boulder up the hill. These -hmm. systems do not want to engage with us. They do not think this stuff is a problem. You know, maybe we'll we'll count this one by just like number of institutions and corporations and other like non-values aligned people who will even like partner with us or talk to us in some way. And so we just counted that, which is like a terrible metric, but it was what it was. But we were like, one day there's going to be actual demand for this work one day. People are going to be so eager to address harassment that they are going to pay us to talk to us. And lo and behold, that day has come. I am happy to report we brought in 1.5 million in earned income revenue, which for the founders out there that are being told to bring in earned income revenue to your blue in the face, like I get it. Like not all movement built, not all movements, not all work is ready for revenue. Like sometimes you got to like create the demand before you can like bring in the revenue. Yeah. But it did work out. And now, now we're growing. It's so I want to dig into stuff. this growth. And in particular, the sort of leap from scrappy, not startup, but like scrappy. Some years were like, how is this working? You have led your organization through all of those phases, right? The startup phase, the growth phase, where maybe the growth out paced the revenue, the years where you had the product in no debate, right? All of those things. And now fairly suddenly, right? Um, quickly, I will say, not suddenly because it's, it's been a journey, but quickly you have just skyrocketed in terms of your growth. So I'd love for you to talk both about, just give us a snapshot of sort of where you are and what this growth is. And then just a little insight into like, how do you continue to sort of set your intentions as you shift through these life cycles and life phases of the organization from sort of scrappy startup to growth phase to, okay, now actually we have the revenue to just fly. Like, how do you hold steady as the leader through those phases? So first start off with like, where are you guys? Like paint the picture. I'm so excited about (laughs) where you guys are. Last year, I think we had a $1 million budget. We just passed a $5 million budget. In a year. I want to pause. In a year. That's in a year. Like 
I have nonprofit leaders who, you know, I work with <laughs> dozens of them and they're all like, so we have $250,000 and then the next year we'd like to be at 5 million. And usually I'm like, so I am a huge believer in abundance. I think we set our vision <laughs> and we strive for it. And I also want to say that doesn't happen. And now, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but actually, so, okay, great. So now we have a picture. Well, God, I mean, look, like we did our time in yeah. the under million dollar budget range. Well, talking about that time, like what did you do to set the stage to be ready, right? To be ready to receive that. Okay. So uh, here's part of a story, which is a, maybe the story, right? Which is in some ways like very, it is, it is where the movement is in part. Yes. Like the movement had to come along. But it's also a story of like my own like growth and evolution, right? It's a story of like me, I I think in hindsight, like almost not believing that we could do it, not believing that I could do it. I think it was a story of, you know, and then I would sort of defend that or couch that and like, well, these are values. Like we don't want to be like one of those dumb institutions, you know, Uh, (laughs) stuck. Nonprofit oh. industrial complex, like that's I would right. defend. That's how I would intellectually defend it. But I think the reality is, is like my heart wasn't in a place where I felt like like we deserve, like I deserved it. I mean, not even we. Of course, we deserve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I didn't deserve, yeah. it, you know. And um, and I think there was part of me that was very unintentionally keeping us small. There was also just part of timing, like the movement wasn't ready yet. But oh I was scared, you know, I was scared yeah. to run, Yeah, scared to be, you know, the head of the Planned Parenthood of harassment, right? Well, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, I just love, love, love that you said that and that you showed that. And I think that that sense of vulnerability, right, that comes with pushing past the frontier that our organizations are on, right? is scary and hard and we never talk about it, right? Yeah. Especially being women leaders. You and I came of age at a time when, and I, I'm hoping this is changing, sort of definitions of leadership meant a thing. They meant a certain thing. They meant being in the world in a certain way. And you're not supposed to say, but I'm a little scared of running a $5 million organization. That makes me very public. That makes, it puts me on in spot. Like you're not supposed to say that. So I just, I want to like, I love that you said that. How did you, what changed, right? How did you uh, do well, it? I so resonate with what you say too, because we're also, we do this work because we're so sensitive to the ways in which power has been used against us, right? Yeah. And so first of all, to be an executive director is sort of a, Black. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're like, whoa, I have all the power in the room. How do I manage this? This is really That's weird. Right. How do I do it responsibly? And yeah, absolutely. But then to run a powerful organization on top of that, that's like double power, you yeah. know, that that you've really got to manage. And, you know, and I think that is, And not apologize for, right? And and feel a certain way about like the space you take up and the impact you have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah. So what changed? So I had, I want to say the past seven years of phenomenal executive coaching Mm -hmm. and somatics coaching um, to really push my own personal growth. And a lot of the things that were holding me back, I don't know if they resonate with anybody else, but like, you know, I had 
sort of beliefs that everything was my fault, right? So that if the anything in the organization went wrong, it was my fault. Right? You can right. see how that's, that goes awry real right. quick. Um, <laughs> because like makes everything goes wrong, like all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I was attracting people around me who were like, yeah, it's your fault. Everything is your fault, <laughs> which was not great either. And then I think there was, I also just really failed to see things as potentially like complexly as I see them now. Like I really, you know, I, I really thought that the world had clearer yes and right answers. Than <laughs> but that's yes, also no, because right. you were in your 20s when yes, you started it. Like yeah, I thought that too I was. in my 20s. <laughs> I was, you know, and I thought that like, that you couldn't, I mean, even in thinking about our work, you know, like that, it, that could people, could people be like complete jerks and good people at the same time? Right. Like, I don't think that I could fully hold that idea. And yet that idea in 2021 is so core to our philosophy, right? The idea that yes, you can both actively harass people and you can grow from that. And you can be a good person and harass people at the same time, believe it or not. Like, you know, like it doesn't just automatically put you in like a bucket of evil, right? Like it, like that people are complex, that these situations are complex, but it's not this, like this, I think I, when I started it, I really saw it as a binary between like the people who are harassed and the people who, yeah. the, the people who are harassed and the people who harass, right? Yeah. And now I'm like, all right all of us have been treated as less than at some point, although let's apply a little power and oppression analysis to it. Definitely some people more than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of us have created harm at some point during our lives. Although yeah. some obviously more than others. <laughs> our former president might win an award on that front. <laughs> but, you know, I think, but holding that a little bit more complexly allows space for all of us to see, to see our growth to see our healing journeys, to see how all of that kind of intersects, right? And 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 to treat each other with with a little more humanity. Right. You know, I think we need to move yeah. beyond not just cancel culture, but also like culture of, you know, the prison industrial complex, like a culture of just like throwing people away, that people are disposable. And like towards this idea of like, all right, I see your growth edges there, friend, on the street saying that nasty thing to me. That needs to be the new t-shirt. I just, I mean, what I, what I love about that is it makes me think, and I don't know the answer to this question, right? I think, I think your growth journey really resonates with me personally as a leader, as a sort of woman professional, as an entrepreneur, you know, the, the danger of playing small in ways we don't even realize we are and all of those things. But it also makes me think about whether it is possible to have the kind of impact that you guys are having and envision having, having the kind of growth that you have experienced, if that's the vision, right, through the organization, can you do it if the world, if you see the world and define your work in black and white, if you, if you cannot find ways to build bridges, to work across difference, I am increasingly thinking that tectonic positive social change requires hard work across difference. And part of what I'm hearing you say is some of that's institutional and organizational and partnerships. And some of that is personal. Me as a steward of this organization. Yeah. Yeah. I used to think that if I just worked hard enough, 
and you know I got hustle. If I just busted enough derriere that yeah. like uh, that it would work. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't entirely wrong. I mean, it did work, but that wasn't the thing that made it work. If I was still just in the mode of like making it happen, right? If I was still in the mode of of, of hustle without this sort of parallel growth process alongside it, I think that it, we would not have, have grown because part of, because I don't just want to not just make this all about me, right? While right. I tell my personal story, but part of it is that when I created that space inside myself, I attracted different people and I was in a different level of relationship with them, right? Yeah. So, I mean, my deputy director, Jorge Arteaga is like, just a next level powerhouse soul of like a human, right? Like, I mean, not only is he like phenomenal in terms of like getting the job done and he's the hustle and all that good stuff that you need to move from, you know, startup to institution. Um, but he's just a beautiful, beautiful person. Right. Yeah. And I remember going through some of these shifts and talking to my, you know, executive coach, my semantics coach at the time. And I was like, I just don't know anybody like that, right? Like we would talk about sort of this this shift, right? And I was like, I just don't know. I want to hire these beautiful, amazing people, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure they even interviewed one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's right. Yes, but uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden, right? Myself being on the other side of this transition, I'm like, oh, y'all are everywhere. You're everywhere, right? And so to be able to see that in people, those people were there to begin with, right? It was, it was me that was limited, not them. But to see that in people, I think is, is different and allows you to build a different sort of team and to be in a different kind of relationship with your team. Because ultimately I am still just one person, right? Like, and there is no amount of hustle that's going to run a, (laughs) that one person can do running a $5 million organization. Like it can't be about me hustling. It has to be me in a different, uh, a different job. Where I set visions, values, and expectations. I remind myself of this all day long because I'm trying to transition into this new job. Visions, values, and expectations. That's what I'm here for. So talk to me about this team. One of the other things that I think has been really important to you from the beginning of the organization, and it's really just interesting hearing your growth journey, and now I'm wondering sort of how this all, like what the through line here is, is this idea of sort of decentralized authority, decentralized leadership. And I think that's fascinating because I, a lot of organizations, when you talk to them about being ready to scale, right? And so many people don't realize how much of it is mindset, right? How much of it is up here and not just the structures and the operations. But I also get a lot of pushback around non-traditional staffing structures, non-traditional forms of sort of hierarchy and authority that, you know, in order to grow, I have to have this board of directors that has 12 people and they each write $100,000 checks and I'm the ED and I have a leadership team with four people and they each have four people that report to them. And, you know, now, as you may remember- That's great. That sounds great. Great organization. I love a good structure. I am a huge fan of, you know, clear lines of accountability and- that is fine for some organizations and not others. And so, you know, I think part of what I w- was excited to talk with you about is like, yeah, that's great for, for, for an organization that has that structure and that culture. I ran my organization that way. Like I had board and a leadership team and it was, it fit my Virgo INFJ personality, uh, right? Yes. And it was fine. And we grew in, in thir- and flourished, but I'd love to dig into like, what if you're not that because I think a lot of leaders are like, I'm not that. Like, that's not, that doesn't feel natural to me. 
necessarily, and so therefore, can I not scale, right? Therefore, how do we grow? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, so we are a movement building organization. So by definition, we are about engaging people to take action, right? And not just write checks, but like legit, like take action, right? Which could be sharing your story. It could be coming to a training. You know, we have a site leader program. It could be running, you know, a site in some part of the world, really leading this movement in your own community. Lots of, we, you know, are by design, we're creating lots of different sort of rungs of that ladder to engage in. And by, you know, design, we also have just a lot of, you know, volunteers and volunteer work coming into the organization as well. I would say for, for folks who that structure feels unnatural. And I think they're for the, 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 you know, the hierarchy and all that drama. <laughs> so I think at the end of the day, we are not going, there's not enough, enough capital in our spaces, maybe in the world, for us to accomplish our our missions with just our staff, right? Like I think it takes more than that because the change has to, we can't just change our staff, right? It takes more. Yeah. It takes more. So I think there's that, that piece of it too. People have to be thoughtful about like, well, how are you going to create those light bulb moments Mm -hmm. for people, you know, who aren't you know, in, in your office every day. I also think that it is worth, especially for women, folks of color, transgender expansive folks, people with disabilities, especially for those who are most marginalized, it is worth taking some time to unpack your relationship to power (laughs) and like getting real with it. Right. And because, Oh my goodness. Yeah. I want y'all to have, and me, <laughs> all of us, right over here, who, who for whom power has been used against to step into our power. And yeah. I don't believe that because one of us steps into our power, that means somebody else can't. Like I want all of us. Like there is abundant power. There is abundant light in this world. Like all of us just get to step into it um, and and be it, be the light, see the light, you know, receive that light. That's all there for us. It's infinite. And, you know, and I think sometimes we are shaped in ways that makes it easy for us to get in our own ways. Like the world has created every single obstacle for us to get in our own way. You know, I, I mean, you think about my own story. Well, you know, part of it is that I didn't think I deserved it, but guess what? I also spent the first, you know, especially the first, like 2005 to 2015, like any, really anything pre me too. It's only recent that this isn't happening with so many people telling me that harassment wasn't a problem. Yeah. Like what? That happens. Like what? What are you talking about? Like, oh, if, a, if it's not rape, if it's not murder, then it doesn't count. You know, like all of this like nonsense. I had a major, and I know I complained to you about this, Brooke. You might remember this. I had a major social entrepreneurship foundation, very well respected in the space, turn me down with the written feedback, the written feedback that harassment was not an important or significant enough social issue, especially inside the US, they wrote, maybe in other countries, right? Which is so I can see that still you're just like, it was a while ago and you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
pretend we got that nonsense, right? So like, uh, yeah, I've been gaslit up the wazoo, right? So I mean, I would have to be like superwoman not to internalize a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think what you're saying about, there's two sort of things I want to lift up there. One is going back to your conversation about sort of mindset and your growth journey. I think that, and I wrote about this, I think last week in my, in my newsletter about um, reality distortion fields <laughs> and sort of the distortion of reality and the very special kind of confidence that is required of leaders of small and growing nonprofits because you, of course, internalize the constant no's, right? Or maybe not constant, but the frequent, <laughs> the not infrequent no's, the people who are like, I don't see your vision. And actually, I see what you're describing and I don't think it's a good vision. Like you like you said, you'd have to not be human to, to, inter- to not internalize that. And also you have to keep going. And also you have to inspire your team. And also you have to somehow sit in front of the next funder or the next owner or the next partner. And while you also have the voice in your head of the last person who was like, oh, I sort of don't think it's good, paint a picture that is compelling enough to keep going. And so I just, I wanted to lift that up because I, it is a special skill <laughs> that has to be hard. The hardest job in the world. I'm here just barely, like one toe over on the other side of that job. <laughs> and I am here to say, having yeah. lived through both worlds, that job's harder than, than the one on the other side with the $5 million budget. That yeah. job is harder. Agreed. And then the second thing I wanted to lift up about sort of what you were saying about power, I think what I hear in what you're saying is that a lot a lot of the conversations about like, how do we structure our team? Is it a hierarchy? Is it flat? Is it a leadership team or not, right? That ultimately every organization has to structure their team in the way that is responsive to the work they need done. But what gets in the way, I think, of the honest conversations about who needs to be in which roles is this issue of power. That organizations shy away from saying, this is going to be your role and this is going to be your role and here's how you work together. And we have different, very important roles because somehow if we give this person a different title, like it's all about a discomfort with power. And if we could see power as abundant in the way that we see resources and the way that we see happiness, then the noise around structure would go away and we'd be like, you know what, you're best at that. So you do that thing and don't worry about not having as much power as me doing this other thing, because that's not part of our conversation. That's part of what I sort of hear you saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, we need to make like power visible, you know, and not, not pretend like we're a flat organization when we're not, we're a hierarchical organization. And, you know, for like the white folks out there like me and not pretend like we're not white. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like be just like real, like, hey, I'm white and I'm an executive director. Isn't that weird? Let's talk about it. You know, let's talk about it. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So I want to close on advice. I mean, I feel like you've already just given like so much. This is like a mini course on nonprofit leadership growth. And it's just been really, I, I wrote on my notes, OMG. Like I've just loved this. <laughs> and, but I'd love to see what, you know, one or two pieces of advice you have for organizations that are on this side of the like explosive growth. You know, most of the organizations that I work with, almost all of them are, these are incredible leaders who are working towards that first million dollar milestone, right? That first big shift and inflection point. And 
there's a shift, right? I often say to folks that I work with that a million dollar organization is not a $500,000 organization with more money, right? That a lot of these mindset shifts for you to be ready to receive the $5 million, the corporate partnerships with Uber and, you know, you had to make these shifts and growths as an organization, as a person. So if you're talking to leaders under a million in this sort of growth phase, one or two pieces of advice you have. Yeah. I mean, I made it through, but I think, you know, one of the things that's been reflected back to me through some of my friends that have seen me through this journey has, you know, now, now that we're sort of a little bit, maybe on the other side of it, folks are like really openly reflecting back to me. Like, I cannot believe you stayed in the, in the game. Like, I cannot believe you stuck it out because uh. my friends especially watched the amount of just hard stuff yeah. that I went through. Like, it is truly like one of the hardest jobs in the world. And the amount of doors slammed in my face and the amount of just, you know, uh, really growth that like at times, like I was like, I wasn't like trying to grow. It was just like the world was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I got this. It's like, you, you're going you're gonna to grow or you're going to explode. One or the other. <laughs> um, and so, but I instinctually really as much as like, there were definitely days that I entertained leaving for sure. I instinctually felt like I needed to stay, that I had more to offer, that we weren't done yet, that these challenges were things that, that we could get through, that what we were the change that we were creating in the world was more powerful than the negative impact that it had at my lives at times. And not to say that it was all negative. We had yeah, amazing yeah. things happening as well, but it was hard. And so I guess my advice would just be like, follow your instinct, right? If your instinct is like, I need to do something else, like get it, right? I've seen so many people do that and like have amazing careers. My instinct was like against everyone's advice who was like, look, you, you got a resume. You could very easily leave and do something amazing with your life that like makes you more money and is less stressful. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. Yeah. And now I'm really glad that I, that I did, right? Even though it may have been like a measure of insanity, if I had been a founder is a little bit, but, you know. I love it. Listen a little, to it. a little bit. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But yeah, I, I think I think just following your gut, knowing what, knowing when it's right to to stay, and knowing when it's right to go, and not feeling shame about either side of that equation. Well, and and also, you know, listening to your gut as you are setting intentions for growth, and when you have the door slammed, you know, your gut will say, "No, we've got something good here." right? Maybe that person doesn't see the vision, but, but I do. And sort of holding on to that. I, I think that's amazing advice. Thank you. This Thanks for been, having me. This has been amazing. It's been great. It's been just a wonderful conversation. And as always, it's great talking to you. And thank you for being so just earnest and open and helpful. And this has been great. <laughs> Well, I love, I love for listeners who don't know, Brooke and I used to do regular monthly coffee chats back in our early ED days when people actually had coffee together and something <laughs> exams and just learned so much. And Brooke, you've been so instructional in the growth and development of Hollaback as well. So thank, thank you for your gifts to Hollaback. And also just what a wonderful pleasure to have that come full circle and to be yeah. in a moment where now our little coffee chats. I do wish we were in person instead of over Zoom, but our little coffee chats, you know, are, are, are public. They're in a podcast. How fun. 
is so much fun. (laughs) Well, until next time, which will be soon, have a wonderful day and thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends and leave a review and a rating. It really helps. I'd also like to share some free resources. If you are a leader of a small six-figure organization and you're ready to play bigger, you're ready to scale to the next level of impact and resources, check out my free training, Scale Your Small Nonprofit to Big Impact. I offer a roadmap to getting the funding, staff, board, and support you need to hit your first million dollars. You can sign up for the training at richiebabbage.com backslash ready to scale. Finally, if you'd like more leadership resources and strategies delivered right to your inbox every week, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and an inspirational quote on a theme. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.